Bonaparte was Napoleon. He was Bonaparte, a military general who rose to power in a coup d'etat in 1799, becoming first consul of France, a post that he endowed with dictatorial powers. Taking advantage of an unstable political climate, he reinvented himself multiple times, capitalizing on the power of art to legitimize his authority. To give, to give you a sense of how rapidly he transformed himself, I show you Bonaparte, the heroic general crossing the Alps in the tradition of Hannibal. And lest you miss the illusion, David has conveniently inscribed Hannibal um, on the stones below. As painted by Jacques-Louis David in 1800. But then, two years later, Bonaparte the statesman. Here shown as first consul of France in 1802, the year that the Senate proclaimed him first consul for life. And two years after that, Napoleon I, the newly self-crowned emperor of France. His various public persona represented uncharted iconographic territory for French artists. Accustomed to centuries of monarchical rule, and most recently, a decade of revolution and political instability, artists had to invent new ways of representing power in the form of Napoleon and the changing image of authority that he represented. Today, I want to focus on a pivotal, albeit little-known, diplomatic success of Bonaparte's tenure as First Consul, as commemorated by Francois Chacard. And I should add that in this crowd, perhaps, the event is perhaps more well-known, but trust me, at least on this side of the Atlantic, the Concordat is not exactly on the tip of everyone's tongue. <coughs> Soon after his 1799 coup d'etat, Bonaparte began to take steps to re-establish France's ties with the Catholic Church in Rome in the aftermath of the anti-clericalism of the Revolution. After prolonged and contentious negotiations, an agreement with the Catholic Church was reached in 1801. On July 15th, that would be one day after the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, and I don't think that's a coincidence, Bonaparte signed the Concordat, as the agreement is known, which established Catholicism as the religion of the majority in France. It was ratified by Pope Pius VII in Rome a month later, and formally promulgated in France on Easter Sunday of the following year, in a lavish ceremony that took place at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and of course, Bonaparte was there. Less than a week after that ceremony, the government issued a call for artists to celebrate the ratification of the Concordat, and that took the form of an artistic competition, or concours, to award commissions. The artist's submissions were placed on view at the Louvre on December 6, 1802. And I should add that that concours invited not only painters, but also sculptors and architects to commemorate both the Concordat and the Treaty of Amiens. But my focus is on the Concordat, and specifically the painters who submitted oil sketches for this competition. Most artists visualize the event as an allegory, as in this theatrical tableau by an artist called Francois. Bonaparte, in case you don't recognize him, he's the figure to the right, He's shown nude, à l'antique, and he is celebrated as the restorer of the Catholic faith in France. Opposite him, the Pope, not nude, is shown with an allegorical figure of charity at his feet. Now I should add, with all this nudity, that Bonaparte did not like to be portrayed nude. If any of you know the statue by Canova, the faith that that endured is a case in point. 
And he also hated allegory. So none of this bodes particularly well for this artist's submission. As one further example, this unknown artist created a curious hybrid of allegory and portraiture. Here we see the first pencil clothed this time in contemporary dress. He is shown presenting religion with a capital R to France. The wolf of irreligion lies vanquished at the feet of France. There. And the virginal figure of religion here holds the concordat. In addition to the overall mediocrity of the submitted works, contemporary reviewers of the exhibition roundly criticized the artists for their recourse to allegory. One critic lamented that the dependence upon this mode deprived the paintings of their contemporary relevance. And I quote, what is missing from these works is indispensable, precise information about the event that gave rise to the painting, end quote. The French press dismissed the exhibition as a public laughingstock. And I should also add that at least in the Collection d'Elouan, which preserves uh, Salon criticism of this date, there were very few uh, references to this particular concours in 1802. So either the writers had other things to write about or they just didn't care. On that note, enter Francois Gerard, one of David's star pupils whom we heard about yesterday. He was a successful portrait, portraitist and aspiring history painter. The origins of Gerard's drawing, which has been dated to around 1803, remain unknown. There is no evidence that it was a commissioned work, nor was it made for the 1802 competition. And I should add that I can state that with certainty because all the works in the 1802 competition were oil sketches, and this is clearly not an oil sketch. And not surprisingly, none of those oil sketches were realized as finished paintings. Their fate begs the question as to why Chacard would make such a highly finished drawing of a subject that failed to inspire either artists or the public at large. And by 1803, the approximate date of this work, the first consul's propagandistic program was directed elsewhere. In this drawing, Gerard represents the Concordat as a contemporary event in a work that fuses portraiture and history painting, and he emphasizes Bonaparte's decisive role in the proceedings. Bonaparte's brother, Joseph, ceremoniously presents the document for his signature, and note how Gerard highlights the as yet unsigned page, seated on the table. On the right, the Pope's representative in the negotiations, Cardinal Consalvi, wearing his traveling clothes, one presumes so that he could make a quick getaway to Rome, bows his head in deference to Bonaparte's authority, as several of Bonaparte's advisors look on. The treaty was signed at the Hotel Marbeuf, then the Paris residence of Joseph Bonaparte, the setting of which Gerard's drawing evokes. The armchair occupied by Bonaparte is nearly identical to those in a suite of 10 made in 1800 by the firm of Jacob Freire for Napoleon's council room at Malmaison, in which he presided during cabinet meetings. And the exactness with which Gerard duplicates the chair that you see on the right is down to the lion's head mounts that you see both on the real chair as well as in Gerard's drawing. Now this weighty armchair 
also asserts Bonaparte's authority. In the royal hierarchy of seating during the Ancien Regime, armchairs were reserved for those with the highest status. And to make a comparison, I draw your attention to the side chair without arms on the left of the drawing. It's kind of like if you've ever been at the kids' table at any meal. It's kind of that kind of contrast. Its presence here is in keeping with Gerard's practice of personalizing his portraits with a piece of furniture belonging to the sitter in a reflection of their taste. As was the case in another portrait, a Gerard's 1808 portrait of another statesman, Talleyrand, which includes a portrait of Talleyrand's neoclassical writing table. And Gerard paints that with such accuracy that my colleague at the museum was able to identify the table as a work by Pierre Garnier that, in fact, Talleyrand actually owned. But back to the Concordat. Despite the apparent, apparent verisimilitude of the scene, the initial agreement was signed by representatives of both Bonaparte and the Pope at midnight on July 15th, and Bonaparte was not there. The next morning, Bonaparte declared that he was satisfied with the proceedings, and this was relayed to the Pope's representative, Cardinal Consolvi. In Gerard's recreation of the event, Bonaparte occupies the central position. A globe, strategically placed behind the armchair, gives it a throne-like appearance, an illusion doubtless intended to flatter the First Consul. Its rounded form also frames his head, not unlike a halo, and all eyes are on Bonaparte. The presence of a globe, a symbol of empire in royal portraiture, also hints at Bonaparte's imperial ambitions. Just to give you a sense of the kind of antecedents to such imagery. Um, Queen Elizabeth I, 1592, prominently, literally, standing on a globe. You can't get much less subtle than that. Um, uh, an image by Turquet of Louis de France uh, at the tender age of nine with a globe that's nearly as large as he. And I think most relevant to the notion of a globe and um, leadership would be an image of Charlemagne. And as you well know, um, Napoleon cultivated the connection with Charlemagne, so much so that he, at his um, coronation in 1804, he actually had Charlemagne's imperial orb was there, um, held by General Berthier in the proceedings. Despite the political significance of the Concordat, in purely visual terms, the simple act of signing a document lacks interest, which may well be why Gerard's contemporaries reverted to allegory. But Gerard came up with a clever solution to animate the scene. I draw your attention to the prominence of the painting within the painting, which represents a battle. Clouds of smoke are visible in the distant landscape. The figure on the rearing horse directly above, above Bonaparte is none other than the general himself, surveying his troops. Not only does the painting inject a note of drama in the otherwise static composition, it also reminds us that Bonaparte is a virile man of action, a heroic general, not simply a bureaucrat sitting behind a desk in this case, beside the desk. Despite its sketch-like rendering, the mountainous landscape background in the painting evokes the alpine setting of the Battle of Rivoli, 
in which Bonaparte led the French to a decisive victory during his first Italian campaign in 1797. The battle was widely represented in both prints and paintings that are contemporary to this work. In fact, in 1800, soon after his coup d'etat, Bonaparte asked the Minister of the Interior, who just happened to be his brother Lucien, to quote, choose the six best painters to paint as many battles, which included the Battle of Rivoli. In 1805, Baclay d'Albe announced a painting of the subject based on this earlier work, shown here, and the fact that that was happening in 1805 attests to the sustained interest in representing this battle which had taken place in 1797. And I thank my colleague Valerie Bajou for drawing my attention to these and other relevant battle imagery. Now, back to Gerard's painting. He narrows his focus as compared to the more panoramic view that we just saw by Baclay d'Albe, but he similarly juxtaposes near and far in the group of mounted figures overlooking the battle waging in the distant valley. The drawings of Carl Vernet, who accompanied Bonaparte in Italy, were widely published during the consulate and early years of the empire. And in 1808, Vernet realized this painting of the battle. The compositional similarities among these contemporaneous views of Rivoli suggest the possibility of a common source, which remains to, to be identified. At least to me, it remains to be identified. Gerard's insertion of a battle scene was topical as well as flattering.
18th century, images such as Le Grand de Ferrand's portrait of the Berkey family, shown at the Salon of 1796, celebrated domestic harmony, making the notion of harmony quite literal in this instance, as one of Berkey's daughters is playing the piano on the right. Similarly, this family portrait, shown at the Salon of 1801, revolves around the eldest son in the family, which was not at all unusual in, in such imagery. In 1804, François-André Vincent portrayed the diplomat, Comte de Forêt, in his study, shown with his wife and daughter. Like Gerard's drawing of approximately the same date, it is set in a domestic interior, and the count at his writing table suggestively mirrors Gerard's portrayal of Bonaparte. To my eyes, Gerard's representation of the signing of the Concordat partakes of the domestic ambiance of family portraits in terms of its small scale and intimate setting and the grouping of figures around Bonaparte as if he were the head of a household rather than a head of state. The analogy with familial imagery is also apt in that in 1801, First Consul Bonaparte was still a private citizen as Tony Halliday has pointed out in his influential work. In a family portrait, an action unifies the figures. A scene of parental instruction or a musical gathering, as we just saw, serve the same role as the, as the passing of the pen to Bonaparte in Gerard's composition. The drawing's relative modesty in conception, as well as in scale, may in part account for the fact that it was never realized as a painting. A lithograph after it did not appear until 1807, its late date rendering it irrelevant in terms of contemporary politics, because of course by then Bonaparte was emperor. But the subject was again topical in 1804, when Gerard exhibited this drawing at the Paris Salon, only months before Bonaparte would crown himself Napoleon I, Emperor of France, at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. That lavish ceremony was conducted in the reluctant presence of Pope Pius VII, the other signer of the Concordat. To that point, when the Pope arrived in Paris for the festivities, he found Gerard's drawing hanging in the apartment that his imperial host had prepared for him in the Louvre, a none too subtle reminder of Napoleon's omnipresence, if not omnipotence. Thank you.